I came around to that thing once again that I think men are okay with that women are still very nervous about, which is nobody knows how to do this job when you start. I will figure it out. It is a huge, amazing opportunity. That real estate of television, for lack of a better term, is still watched by millions of people every single day. My name is Linda Laurel, and I'm asking you to have the courage to listen with an open mind to all of our voices, because our voices matter. I want to take a moment to thank BMW of West Houston for sponsoring this episode of our Voices Matter podcast. BMW, of course, is known as the ultimate driving machine because of its precision and power. As someone who has driven a BMW for many years now, I can attest to that firsthand. But I think what's even more important, especially about this particular BMW dealership, is that it understands the power and the impact of giving back to its community. BMW of West Houston is known for its support of countless local charities, and that is important to us here at Our Voices Matter podcast. So if you choose to do business with BMW of West Houston, not only will you be getting the stellar first-class service that the dealership is known for, but you can also rest assured that you are doing business with a dealership that truly cares about and gives back to its community. Hey everybody, it's Linda Laurel. I am so glad that you joined us for this episode of Our Voices Matter podcast. My guest today is a multiple Emmy award-winning and Peabody award-winning journalist who is responsible for shaping two hours of news every weekday morning on CBS. Her name is Shauna Thomas and she's the executive producer of CBS Mornings. Now, Shauna and I go way back. She grew up here in Houston, so I've known her for quite some time. And we will go into our backstory, and it's a fun one. But let me tell you a little bit about her journalistic journey, which she goes into great detail. She is a graduate of George Washington University in political communications. She has a master's degree in broadcast journalism from the Annenberg School of Journalism at USC. She has worked at multiple major networks across the spectrum, all of which led her to the position that she now holds at CBS. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. And if you are a a journalism junkie, somebody who really follows the business and wants to know a little bit more about how the sausage is made, this is for you. If you are a young person aspiring to be a journalist or you know someone who aspires to be a journalist, this conversation is for you. If you want to learn a little bit more about management and leadership style, this conversation is for you. There is so much here, and I am so incredibly proud of her. And when you hear this conversation, you will see why. Here now, my conversation with Shauna Thomas. Shauna, it is such a pleasure to finally get you on the show, and we've been trying to connect for a while, and I'm just so excited to have you. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad we were able to do this. Yeah, me too. So before we let our audience in on the how we know each other and how, how far back it goes, I want you to kind of take us through a little bit of a snapshot of your career and how you ended up leaving Houston, Texas and becoming who you are now as the executive producer of CBS Mornings. So I know it's quite a story. <laughs> it's, I mean, I'm going to try to truncate it as much as possible. But yes, I grew up in Houston, Texas, watching you on television, clearly on the news, on the local NBC affiliate. Um, and I, um, I decided to go to college to study political communication. I thought I would go into politics, campaign management, that kind of thing. And my parents in Houston, while neither of them has run for office or anything like that, definitely instilled in me the idea that voting was important and understanding government was important and politics was important. And I used to watch Beat the Press as a child, um, which makes me an incredible dork, I realize. But, you know, (laughs) that is is, uh, how I grew up. And um, so I, I went to college in Washington, D.C. at the George Washington University um, and kind of got my first real taste of, of working for a news organization. I interned with Fox News while I was there. 
Um, but I, I also was getting this degree in politics and really thought that's what I was going to do and ended up with my first sort of real full-time adult job um, out of college being um, a lobbyist for the meatpacking industry. And I did that for two years. And about a year into it, I, it really solidified that I'd rather report and tell people how politics works instead of like physically like myself going to fundraisers and lobbying and that kind of thing. But I did, I did learn a lot about how Congress and Capitol Hill and campaigns worked and that kind of thing because of that job. So the second year I did that job, I was applying to graduate school for journalism. Um, and you know, I'm sure we, there could be another podcast just on the practicality of going to grad school for journalism. But for me, it was important because there's some very hard skills I needed to learn. And even though I had taken media and journalism classes in college as part of my degree program, you know, I didn't know how to shoot. I didn't know how to edit. I didn't know how to do a lot of things that I was, and this is the sort of 2002, 2003, 2004 time I went to grad school in 2004, where people, especially younger people getting into this career needed to start to know how to do everything. Like things were not going to be as siloed anymore. So I went to uh, University of Southern California, Annenberg School, uh, which is, in my opinion, the best broadcast journalism program in the country. Um, and and really sort of got my... I know it's great, but we can debate that. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Mizzou grad, okay? So, so I okay. understand that. They're I understand. Great schools. <laughs> they are great schools. Um, so I got my hands really dirty at Annenberg, um, really just learning how to put all the parts together. Um, and as well as learning journalism theory and writing and writing for TV and writing for online and writing for print and all that kind of stuff. So the, the idea of the program was to sort of create kind of a really well-rounded person, even if you knew, and as I did, that like I was going to really focus on broadcast journalism. Um, and out of there, I was lucky enough to go to NBC kind of right out of graduate school um, into an early career program they, ha they have. It's, a, it's called the News Associates Program. It is about growing sort of producers of color internally inside of NBC. And uh, because of that, I did sort of four different experiences at NBC over the course of a year. And one of those experiences was kind of weirdly full circle for my childhood. I got to work with Tim Russert on Meet the Press, um, filling in for a producer who was on maternity leave at the time. Um, and I could not do at that time what that producer could do, but I did get the experience of working really closely with Tim, which is like a highlight of my career and seeing like how he thought about these interviews and how they put that show together and meet the press, you know, is now the longest running show on television. And it was getting there at that point. And I felt incredibly blessed to do that and really sort of understand BC from a different point of view. Um, but so I sort of grew in my career at NBC. Uh, I spent a decade there. I had amazing experiences. Um, and a lot of it, you know, I, and I tell sort of younger people when I do conversations or talks or whatever about this is a lot of, and I'm just going to say a lot of my success, I think is due to when someone asks you, like, do you want to go do this, no matter how small of a thing it is or how big or how much time it'll take or anything, I'm a big proponent of like raising your hand and just saying yes. Um, and, you know, my one caution is like, if you think someone is putting you in danger, you do not need to say yes to everything. You think someone is like, that, that is one caveat, but overall, no matter how small the task is, it all sort of builds together to make television news. And so I sort of was always, I mean, I think right place at right time, but also raising my hand all the time and being like, yeah, I'll go do that or I'll do this or, you know, just whatever I can learn, whatever I can soak up and let, let me figure that out. And so um, over time, I was um, a Capitol Hill producer, and I got to work with Tim Russert's son, Luke Russert, as the Capitol Hill correspondent at the time at NBC. Um, this was after uh, Tim had passed, but I developed a great relationship with Luke, which we still have, um, and got to to cover Capitol Hill, um, you know, while crazy things were happening that are very similar to things happening now, like not wanting to raise the debt ceiling. <laughs> and are we going to fund the government because everything is cyclical? I know. It's just this never-ending cycle. It's, it's the same thing over and over. Um, and then I got to cover uh, the Obama White House for three years as a White House producer traveling around the world with the President of the United States, which was this amazing, amazing opportunity, um, especially because, you know, first Black president and seeing how that plays out and being on the inside of it. Um, and then I got to actually be the senior producer of Meet the Press uh, when Chuck Todd 
took over, I, I became senior producer and really got to help sort of shape his version of the show. But also, once again, the kid from Houston, Texas, who used to watch the show on TV was now like in the control room and behind the scenes for this show, <laughs> um, which I would say almost every Sunday was this weird dream come true. Um, and and I learned I learned a lot at NBC News and I sort of got to a point in 2016 where, um, you know, it was time to do something a little different and a little new and my contract was up um, and I could have stayed at NBC, I think, for years and years and years. But an opportunity to go from the longest running show on television to a television show that did not exist yet um, with a company called Vice um, was sort of put in front of me. And, and it's one of those things. This is also one of those things about like saying, yes, I knew someone who was going to help run that show. She called me up and said, no, are there are people in DC that you think would be good correspondents for the show because she didn't know DC people. And I did. And I gave her some names, one of which actually ended up getting a job as a correspondent at Vice. And then I was like, well, you know, my contract's up. Is there anything for me? And she was sort of like, well, no, but, you know, we were thinking about hiring a DC bureau chief, but we weren't going to do it until next year. But if you want to come in and meet the boss, you know, you come in and meet the boss. And so I flew myself up to New York or, yeah, I flew myself up to New York and, um, and just did an informational meeting with him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, I, to this day, it was one of the most influential interview processes I've ever been in. I wasn't technically interviewing for a job, but he was interviewing me. And I learned something about how to approach interviews with other people when I would get into a position of hiring, which was, you know, his first question to me wasn't like, tell me about your resume or blah, blah, blah. Um, his first question to me was, what do you think is the biggest problem in Congress right now? It was about trying to figure out how I thought about things. Um, and I, had, I don't think I'd ever been in an interview like that before. And we ended up talking for more time than you ever want to commit to about earmarks, which I think is actually the fact that there are not earmarks anymore is, I think, one of the biggest problems in Congress. Um, and I came and he told me about his vision for the show on HBO that Vice was producing. And I came away from it being like, I'm not like, I'm not going to leave the stability of like meet the press or whatever. But he had like implanted something in my head that kept growing. And I'm like, you know what? I got to do something new. I got to yeah, start a bureau in Washington, D.C. for Vice. I got to be part of this show because I realized that if he was able to achieve the thing that he said he wanted to with that show in three months from then, I'm watching HBO on my couch in Washington, D.C. and not part of it. And it is that great. I would feel like the biggest idiot in the world. And so I raised my hand and said, you know, yeah, I'm going to leave this really stable, great thing and go to this thing at this company that my parents had never heard of. Um, and it's so many great lessons in this, because I yeah. think that, you know, especially as women, we tend to not raise our hand, yes. especially if something is offered to us that we think is outside of our wheelhouse, or it's something that we don't feel that we're qualified for. Yep. Whereas the guys will typically raise their hand and say, sure, I can do that, even though they know full well they can't. But they, they yeah. know that they're going to figure it out. And so yeah. I think it's such an important message that, that you're sharing with young people about the value and the power of raising your hand and trusting yourself. And, and you know what? You might fail, and that's okay. Yeah. You can learn something from it, and then you, you keep going. So your parents yeah. were not all that happy about Vice, right? <laughs> no, no, they were not all that happy about Vice, mostly because, you know, it's one, it's called Vice. And two, it was just, it's just something that was, that they had never heard of. And, you know, going back to, I mean, my parents originally, even after college were like, when are you going to be like, go, when are you going to go to law school? When are you going to go do these things that are very stable? And I think that a lot of that has to do with, I, I think, growing up black i think it has to do a lot for them they grew up um without a lot of money they grew up in various versions of poverty um and and so television and television news just seemed in some ways i think to them a little bit at least my mother a little bit crazy and that there wasn't necessarily you know like i think she worried you know if this doesn't work out how is my kid going to pay for dinner every night and that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there, there's a lot more representation in this business now than there used to be, but there still aren't a lot of people who look like you and I at certain levels of this business. And I, exactly. and making levels. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and so because I had found some kind of version of stability at the network level at NBC, I think my parents were just like, why would you leave that? Um, and I, and I understand it. And I think I understand it a lot better than I used to. Um, but it was something I needed to do. And I thought I could find stability in my own way somewhere else. Um, but you know, sidebar joke, I always say it because it's true. My mother did not stop asking me when I was going to go to law school until I introduced her to Barack Obama at a White House Christmas party, which at that point was like six years into my time at NBC News. It was very clear this is what I was doing for a living. And it really literally took me being like, come to Washington, D.C., come to the White House, come meet Barack the- Obama, kiss her on both cheeks. And then she stopped asking me when I was going to go to law school. Take a look around, see where yeah. you are. I think we're I'm good. Okay. We're, we're, we're good. We're fine. We're fine. Um, so I, I got to work for the show called Vice News Tonight on HBO for three years and really got it, it like was a paradigm shift on how I thought about making TV news and how I thought about storytelling and how I thought about writing and how you shoot a story and all this other stuff. It was just I was learning at the same time. I was running a team that I sort of handpicked in Washington, D.C., and we were making this show that while canceled by HBO after three years, don't get me wrong, I think had some impact. And I think, you know, the biggest example of that for, for me is the Charlottesville episode, which a lot of people saw. Um, and four Emmys and a Peabody for that. Yes. Right? Yes. Sidebar, yes. hello. Yeah. And I was one of the se- one of the two senior producers on, on that particular episode. Okay. So we're, we're going to come back to that in a minute. I want, okay. I want to get to the part where we're, keep going. I want to get you all yeah. the way to where you are now. And then I'm going to come where? back to this part. Yeah, and, and you can edit lots of this. Um, and um, so as advice for three years, the show was ending. It seemed like a natural time to to leave that experience and try something new. And I, I, I definitely I thought about going back to NBC News. I thought about going back to multiple networks at the time. Um, but this offer and experience to work for a, a startup um, called Quibi, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, sort of came to me and it was it was a chance to sort of learn a different side of production. So I ended up being a development executive for this for this company that was run by Meg Whitman and Jeffrey Katzenberg. So it was an LA-based company with a New York office. And I was in charge of developing sort of short-form news content and working really closely with people I had worked with before. NBC had a, had a deal with them. CBS had a deal with them, BBC had a deal with them. And I was like basically managing these accounts and helping them develop this, these short form news programs that would appear every day on this app called Quibi. Um, and so I was, it was sort of a little bit the business side of it. It was the creative side of how do you work with different clients and achieve something different with them. I worked with LA production companies that were making like a, a music news show for us, as well as like a black culture show for us. And I sort of had my fingers on all these different pots and, and just seeing like, how do you kind of build something like this from the ground up? And that didn't work out very well because Quibi does not exist anymore. And so, but I learned, I, I learned a ton from Jeffrey Katzenberg. I learned a ton from the guy who brought me in, this guy named Ryan Kedro, who before that job, he was the executive producer of CBS this morning at CBS. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so when that job ended and my parents learned I had lost my job in the Wall Street Journal, um, I sort of, I, you know, could be did right by us and paid out, you know, a really fair severance, which gave me a couple of months to just kind of be like, I have been going like hard and charging hard for now almost 14 years. Um, what do I want to actually do next? Is it go back into network news? Is it is it go to like a dot-com kind of thing? I, I, I talk to Axios a lot about jobs. Is it go to CNN? Like, what is it? And the, there was, you know, CBS This Morning, now CBS Mornings, because we've changed the name of the show, um, had recently lost their, their executive producer. And, I, and it was a job opening and their recruiters called me. And I... I really uh, struggled with the idea of taking that job. I struggled with the idea of taking the job, I think because of the thing you were saying before, this idea of like, am I actually qualified for this? Am I actually ready for this? Mm-hmm. Which I, even as I, I, I try to, 
push women all the time to raise their hands. And I have raised my hands for a lot of things. Being the executive producer of a morning show, it's a huge staff. It's a lot of money. Um, it is every single day. That particular show is two hours a day, five days a week. Um, and at that point, we were in the middle of a pandemic. I had been working from home for Quibi, um, you know, job hunting from home. And and this was a job where where I'd have to go back into a control room. I'd have to go back into an office. And not everyone at CBS News is doing that. But as you know, like it's really hard to make a television show without being there and you don't need everybody physically there, but there's a core group of people um, and, you know, more power to CBS and NBC, ABC, Fox, CNN during the pandemic for keeping the lights on and keeping television news going and reporting on this huge story that is COVID. But there are people who were going into the office and I had to be one of those people um, and try to navigate. How do you manage a team of people who you may not meet in person for a year? I've now had this job, um, since February of 2021. Um, and I'd say two thirds of the staff that I manage, I have not met in person. Um, we do Zoom meetings all the time. I talk to a lot of people. Day, I have this day, you still have not met all of them? No. Wow. No, because they all, I mean, literally, our rules are we, they all can't come into the office. Right. We still, you know, there are still limits on how many people will allow in, and there's a testing regimen. And, um, and, but, you know, after talking to a lot of people, including my former boss at Quibi, who had run the show, the guy before him, who I had known from NBC before that, who started, uh, CBS this morning when they switched from the early show to CBS this morning in 2012, I believe that's the right year. You know, I came around to that thing once again, that I think men are okay with that women are still very nervous about, which is, Nobody knows how to do this job when you start. I will figure it out. Um, it is a huge, amazing opportunity. That real estate of television, for lack of a better term, is still watched by millions of people every single day. And if I have a chance to help shape that storytelling, help people get smarter, help people feel, help people learn something, and then I learn a lot about not just making TV and making live television, but like the business side of this, the ad sales side of this, the management side of this, it's going to make me more well-rounded in my career too. And also CBS News is the, you know, no offense to my friends at the other networks, the pinnacle of storytelling. It's the place for 60 minutes. It always has been. It always has. Yeah. Um, So so it's hard not to say yes to that. And that's, that is kind of, how I, I ended up back in New York um, almost full time and 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 managing this show. So um, so I've been um, a, a fan of CBS this morning for you and now CBS mornings for many years. So yeah. I have watched the the trajectory of the show through the ups and the downs and the challenges and the you know, the anchor changes and the, you know, the, just everything that every show, you know, I don't care what kind of show it is. Every show goes through it. Right. Um, And it's very challenging. So when you came in, what was your, your thought about how you wanted to shape the show in a way that reflects what your uh, journalistic views are in terms of how to cover a, a chaotic, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very yeah. difficult time in which we are living. What what was your thought process in terms of how you were going to make that mark on your show? So uh, a big thing that I pushed kind of from the very beginning, which came out of me clearly watching a lot of episodes of CBS this morning as I was going through the application process for the job and the interview process um, and as someone who had consumed that show and, and liked the fact that it was the, the the sort of harder news morning show than the other two major network morning shows, right. um, which was part of why I was considering the job, was um, something that I feel like I learned from Vice, which is specificity in storytelling. So I I felt and I feel, you know, and I've definitely been guilty of creating these types of stories that there was a lot of stuff where it was like, you're just being very general. I would say it was, um, I'm trying to think of the term, um, like survey stories. 
So like this happened and this happened and this happened and we don't explain why it's important or, you know, COVID is bad and it's even worse today, but we don't get into like someone's story, even if it's short, even if it's a minute and a half, two minutes of, of illustrating like why this particular aspect of COVID is bad today. And so one thing I started to really push even at the, the top of the show, which is really the newsiest part of the show for all three networks was the anchors can give you the overview of like, what are the overall COVID case numbers in America or in Texas or whatever. But I started trying to push the correspondence on, find me the story, like the the specific story that helps illustrate that. Find the character, find the person who can talk to you about how hard it was to get a shot at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, And and live, live in that story. I will work on the stuff around it that puts it in context for the audience and trying to just, and, and my theory behind that is one, if you can do that, that gives you more time to like allow the, the audience to connect with that person and, and hear that story and possibly learn something from it or feel something from it. But also those individual stories when they are not so time locked in, in like, like this is, this is everything that's happened today. When it's about, okay, this, this woman, because of COVID, her nursery school shut down, which means she can't go to work, which means like we have a larger problem with childcare in this country. Like we can connect dots in these one little stories. That story can live longer online right. than just that hour it's on television. Because you're, so, you're focusing on the human impact. Exactly. And, and, and that's hard. Dots around that. Yes. Yes. And so... What I'm trying to do is create content that works in the context of that two-hour show, that thing we build every day, but also works outside of that context because the future is digital, the future is the internet, the future is all of those things. And so having a story that someone wants to watch, whether it is on my two hours of my television show, or it is on my website, or it is on Twitter, or it is on Facebook, so that you are mul- like you're using the content in multiple places... But hopefully people who are younger, who are not going to watch at 7 a.m. Eastern time on their local CBS affiliate um, can still experience and find content that is relevant, but that lasts online for longer than just that if it's on television. And so I'm really pushing in that direction with the show. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as we've relaunched it and become CBS Mornings, we're trying to be more um, in tune as like one sort of family between CBS Mornings, CBS Saturday Morning and CBS Sunday Morning, the this idea of like more feature storytelling in our eight o'clock hour and spending a little bit even more time with characters and being and and using that time we have on TV with this audience in a slightly different way to tell richer stories is something that I'm excited to do um, and that we're trying to do now. As as a regular watcher viewer of of, of CBS Mornings, you guys did a story earlier this week mm-hmm. um, that was just so beautiful and so impactful. And it's a perfect example of the kind of storytelling that you just articulated. And it was the story about Ghana. Yeah. The woman who left the United States and has moved back to Ghana. Um, I get chills right now. Just so for everybody out there, if you didn't, if you missed that story, you need to go, you know, go online and find it. Yeah, Google CBS Mornings, Deborah Pata, who is an amazing correspondent who's based in South Africa for us, um, and Ghana, and you'll find it. It was an incredible story. And um, it hit home for me because I have been to Ghana a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And um, when she talked about the the impact of being there on a, just the emotional level, I remember when I landed, when our plane landed in Ghana, I started crying. Yeah. Me out. I was not expecting that. And the whole visiting the the slave castles, Mm -hmm. all of it, you know, when you're there, it, um, you know, there's this visceral thing that happens. And that, you know, was my personal experience. And that came across in the story, in her story. And so that's an example of exactly what you were talking about. Find me the story of the person who, because of the way she feels being treated as a woman mm-hmm. of color, a black woman in this country and not feeling safe, 
and wondering when she's looking over her shoulder if she gets stopped by a police officer and scared about all of that to make the decision to literally move her life to Africa was within the context of what's going on in our society today. It was brilliant. And the constant feeling like you're an other in the United States of America and that, and, and the woman that Deborah Pattis spoke to and told the story around, you know, there is this idea that there she's, she, you don't stick out necessarily. And that doesn't mean you don't, you're not special or anything. It's just, it's not the constant reminder of, of, of the otherism that happens in the United States. And it's, you know, I, I thought it was a fascinating story. I had actually been pitched a very similar story while I was at Vice that we never got off the ground. So I was glad Deborah was able to tell it. Um, but, but, but yeah, though, so there's a larger context to why we tell that story right now, but just let the correspondent tell the story. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I love it. And so you, you bring up the subject of the other, and that's what this whole podcast is predicated upon. So I, I started this, the idea for doing Our Voices Matter in the wake of the 2016 election mm-hmm. and the growing divisions that were happening. And, and I, had, I had to make a decision. I said, okay, I've got to do something. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be one of, you know, it's either run for office and literally get in there and try to make change or use my voice as a, as a trained journalist with some credibility and some experience to try and foster conversations that are going to help bring us together. Decided it wasn't the time for me to run for office, maybe someday, but wasn't the time then, isn't the time now. But I could use my voice. And that's what I try to do. So one of the questions that I always ask, ask our guests is, was there, can you think of, can you share, I'm sure there are many, but a story, a time in your life when you felt like the other in your personal or professional life, what that made you feel like, how you dealt with it, mm. and then what you learned from the, that situation that you now carry with you as you show up in the world today. So one thing that sticks out, and this actually weirdly goes back to Tim Russert, is when when I was filling in um, at Meet the Press for for those few months, this was the time when, and I don't I don't know if your listeners are going to remember this, and you know maybe we should leave it in the dustbin of history, but um, there used to be a uh, a you know kind of shock jock radio guy named Don Imus. Oh yeah, who has since passed away. Yeah, and. I was doing that job with Meet the Press at the time when his nappy-headed hose comment happened, mm. um, where he was speaking about, I believe it was the Rutgers women's basketball team. Yep. And, and it was, you know, and he, he, was, he was talking about them and they were in the like NCAA finals or like in the final four or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he referred to them as nappy-headed hose. At the time, Don Imus's radio show was simulcast on MSNBC. And there was a lot of kind of uproar around what he said, rightfully, um, a lot of conversation around this. And this is ooh, probably 2007, I want to say. So not exactly the same place we are in the, the conversation around race where we are now then. Um, and, you know, you look around the room and people are talking about this. And I was the very young in my career at that point, you don't necessarily want to speak up um, and you don't necessarily feel comfortable speaking up. Um, But really feeling, you know, how can, how can the network that I work for allow this guy to be on our air? Like they don't have any control over what he does on the radio, but they simulcast this show. Um, And there was this conversation kind of happening inside NBC and MSNBC after he said that, um, but not something that I felt comfortable speaking up about because who am I, right? Um, and I will remember that Tim Russert, who, while being the, you know, the anchor of Meet the Press, the moderator of Meet the Press, also was the DC bureau chief for NBC News. Um, and I sometimes go back and forth about whether you want to put people on the spot this way. But I remember he pulled me aside and brought me into his office and he said, 
Shauna, I want to know what you think about this. Because I was a young woman of color um, who I think he rightfully perceived was not going to speak up in a meeting about this at the time. Um, and he made the point and was perceptive enough to like ask me how I felt about that and how I felt about the company continuing to work with Don IMS and that kind of thing. And I told him the truth in that moment because I also trusted Tim um, and, and felt like I was being given a safe space to have this conversation while also, in, also being put on the spot because I am a woman of color in this business um, and, and like told them my feelings about it and that I wouldn't necessarily feel proud to work at the place that allows him to keep saying stuff on our air. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm the reason NBC got rid of Don Imus' show. I think it was a, a, a hearing from a lot of different parts of the company as well as outside of the company that did it. But I will never forget Tim taking that moment with me. Um, because if you don't take that moment with people, sometimes if you don't know enough, even him as a white man, he knew enough to be like, these younger people around me who are of color, if we don't at least talk to them about this, we don't address it. If we don't get their input on it, that will always be something they remember about this job, about this place, about this company, about this world that they live in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, you know, that is an example of feeling like the other, but also feeling like I was given agency as the other. Yes. Um, and, and learning something about management from that too. I was just going to say, that's, that's leadership. You know, there are so, yeah. many, there are so many lessons in this story. And let me just say that I loved Tim Russert. I mean, yeah, you know, he, oh my God, he, he, was, he was a giant. And I had the good fortune to, to meet him once when he came to Houston and visited the station where, where I worked at KPRC and um, really spent like a whole day with him. And just hearing, hearing you say this does not at all surprise me that he came to you and, and said, talk to me. How do, you, how do you feel? How are you impacted by this? I, I want to know because that's who he was. And he, and he, he, um, that was a part of him as a journalist, of course. I mean, that's just, mm -hmm. that's just how he, that's just how he rolled. Um, but like the lessons about, about management and, and leadership and, and speaking up and, and then you having the courage to really say how you felt because you didn't have to. No, I did not. You did not have to. But I felt I could in that situation. Yeah. 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 Wow. So um, you mentioned the conversation that, you know, we're having about race. And we mentioned, we talked about Charlottesville very briefly um, and the incredible reporting that your team at Vice News did that garnered, you know, the, the Emmys and the Peabody. And what is it, do you think, about your storytelling that stood out? What, what was the approach? What, what made it yeah. such, a, such a standout? So uh, the dirty little secret of that is we didn't go into that weekend thinking we were going to tell, like turn a whole episode into this, into just this story. We hadn't done that before. At least I don't think we had done that before up until that point. And if we had, it was something that was like much more planned out than this. Um, we thought we were going to cover the, the, the rally. Um, and, you know, on Monday we do a, six, seven minute piece, um, which was sort of like our, our version of <laughs> a sort of shorter package, weirdly. Um, and, but a key thing that allowed us to do what we ended up doing was because that show was five days a week at 7.30 at night on HBO. And we don't, we didn't have a weekend show and the actual event was going to happen on a Saturday as we planned around what was gonna be our angle into that, we, we tried to plan something where it would last until Monday at 7.30 PM. So whatever like spot news happens because you know the, the cable news networks are gonna be there, people are gonna know what happens there. We can't do anything about that. It's not gonna be a secret that you know white supremacists marched in Charlottesville, mm -hmm. which means our piece needed to have some kind of added value that shows you some part of it that that you aren't necessarily going to get from the live hits from CNN. Right. So we had already decided to go into that 
knowing we were going to we were going to follow around this specific white supremacist um, and in some ways embed with him and do it from that point of view, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, it's a controversial choice. But um, the correspondent, Ellie Reeve, who we put on it, um, has a lot of contacts in that world, as well as sort of like online white supremacist organizing. She works for CNN now. Um, and so utilizing her contacts, especially from her previous work before she came to Vice, as well as our, you know, we have amazing producers who helped set it up. We went in knowing that we had a, not a, like a different storyline to follow and that we like some of the noise we weren't going to worry about because we know our show airs 48 hours after this thing happens. Um, so what that allowed us to do is we're planning for that is we were there the night before when they were on the college campus marching and had that and got that footage. Mm -hmm. um, we were there behind the scenes that day with this particular guy. Now that, that what happened ended up being much bigger than I think anyone sort of thought it would be. Um, and just seeing all those people with such like hateful symbols, um, you know, with, without a mask on, without a hood on, just out there um, was incredibly impactful. And then the car accident happened and, and Heather Heyer tragically passed away. Um, and I remember I was, I was actually, you know, I, I was not on the ground there. I was senior producing it and had sent the team, but I actually had been in New Orleans at the NABJ conference, you know, that Friday before. And then I was going to Atlanta to see a friend and I just ended up on the phone with our team the whole time. And also emotionally, like they were not in a good place. Um, but I also was like pushing, I was like, okay, I know, you know, this, this terrible thing happened in front of you. I want to make sure y'all are okay. If we're going to see this story out, we have to keep telling this story. And so, you know, there's a scene in the, in the piece where they're in this hotel room that evening with, um, with the white supremacist, I'm not going to use his name. Um, and he's like, has all these guns around him. And he's kind of like, it's it's a scary scene. I'm scared for the team. We had a whole conversation about like where the producer should be in the hotel room so that they can run out the door and like where the, the cameras would be and all this other stuff. But it was like, we had a story to tell and a storyline to follow. And so we kept following that storyline. And so on Sunday, Sunday night, I'm on the phone with one of the producers back in New York who's starting to put this together with an editor. We're still thinking six or seven minute piece. Um, and I'm like looking at a script and everything. And, you know, once again, another management lesson for me is our boss, Josh Tringle, um, you know, had been part of these conversations and like understanding the footage that we'd gathered and everything. He went into Bro like went into our offices in Brooklyn on Sunday night and watched this cut down the editor had done of the footage. That was something like 60 minutes long, something that, yeah, just long. Um, and I'm still working with the producer and we're trying to like find the right moments. And my boss calls me in, in, you know, I'm in my apartment in DC and he's like, we're going to make this the whole episode. And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, I just watched down like the long cut. And then I ended up being sent the long cut. He's like, we have a, we have a beginning, middle and end and a full story to tell that's impactful. And it is worth showing it to our audience, like kind of being on the inside of the hate. Um, and I had this moment in my brain where I was like, wait, I didn't know we could do that on a nightly news cast. Like we could just fully throw out the convention of having multiple stories and just do one story because this is the right story for us to tell at this particular moment. I, and it sounds crazy now that I didn't think that way, but I didn't think that way. Mm -hmm. Um, well, and yeah, that wasn't the model. Yeah. That, that isn't the model. And, and so Monday, which we ended up airing that piece Monday night. We actually did two versions of the show because we weren't totally sure we would get the, the version of Charlottesville that everyone has seen. We weren't totally sure we'd finish it. So there is somewhere in, you know, some archive, there is like a political report from me about sort of like the political implications of what happened in Charlottesville. There are like three other pieces. We did all this other stuff. And about three that afternoon, we realized that we could not finish both versions of the episode. And so either we put all of our energy into one or we do the other one. And so we scrapped the other version and we're just like, we are going to full bore, get this done. Nobody watched it down before it aired at 7.30. It rolled straight live from our control room to HBO's control room to the world. Um, and we 
just like through sheer will and also knowing we had this story, put it on television. Um, And it was, it was an honor to help shape it. It was an honor to be a part of it. It's still incredibly sad and affecting and, you know, winning a bunch of awards is great, but what was, what was, you know, more fulfilling is that even the show that a lot of people never watched and will never watch uh, that was on HBO, which is behind a paywall, um, even though a lot of our content ended up on YouTube after the fact, um, in that particular piece, I will say eight, we had a seven day lag time between our pieces on HBO and when they could be online for free. That was one where, you know, my boss made a call to HBO and made a call to Richard Plepler, who ran HBO at the time and said, we can't, we can't put this behind a paywall. And HBO said, okay, put it on YouTube. Let's go. Let's do it. Um, And just the fact that so many people watched it and engaged with it and, and learned something and felt something from it and how I, I mean, I think we were all astounded by sort of how it kind of went around the country like wildfire, but that speaks to like true powerful storytelling transcends age group. It's not that young people don't want to watch news. It's that they want, they want to engage in, in impactful stories. Like, but that piece hit young, old, black, white, Hispanic, everyone, because we pulled back the curtain on something. Yeah. And so, and what you pulled back the curtain on um, was kind of, when I think about the imagery from that piece and, um, you know, the white supremacists marching with the tiki torches and all of the hateful things that they were saying, then you fast forward to January 6th. Yeah. And it's, you know, on a, hugely broader, scarier, bigger scale, but that yeah. was like the precursor to January 6th. Oh yeah. yeah, it definitely was a precursor to January 6th. And it was, and you know, I'm reading um, Bob, Wood- Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril, right now. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they go sort of back and forth between the Trump storyline and the Biden storyline and Biden deciding to run. And a big reason that Joe Biden decided to run for president again was Charlottesville and this idea of wait how is that America how is that like how is that okay um and and so you go from Charlottesville to Joe Biden deciding to run to you know November the election last year and and President Trump being unwilling to actually concede and still says he won he won the election that he did not win um and and this idea of trying to stop Joe Biden from from taking the presidency and people literally rioting in the halls of the Capitol, literally trying to stop democracy from happening. Um, it all sort of tracks all the way to that January 6th moment and, and probably beyond um, it. And, you know, it's it's our job, actually, to connect those dots. Right. Okay. So this brings me to my next question. I was watching an interview um, just this morning with, I think his name is Timothy Snyder, um, okay. a Yale professor, scholar, author. Um, and he was talking about the role of journalism today and where, where it needs, how it needs to shift in terms of the way that it's covering. It's no longer, this is him now. He's saying it's no longer about, you know, presenting both sides of a situation and then letting the audience decide that the, the, the point of view that journalists need to take, according to him, is now that the story is democracy itself, that the story is not the left side or the right side, but the story is democracy and whether it is going to survive. And that if we start to look at it from that perspective, as journalists covering stories, it changes the, the dynamic and it changes how you present information to the public. So I'd love to know what your thoughts are about that. So, I, I mean, this kind of goes to the conversation around like, what is objectivity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what is our role as journalists when it comes to not just reporting the story, but like analyzing the implications of the thing that you are reporting on. And I, you know, I'd have to 
hear more about what Mr. or Professor Snyder was talking about, but I do think that part of why we do what we do and the amount of time we spend learning about topics or learning about issues, the amount of time I've spent learning about politics and covering it, it is partially my job to also put all of that in context. And that, that, and that doesn't mean that we don't present, especially when it comes to political coverage, that we don't present what both sides are saying and that, and what they're doing and how that's affecting things. But I think it is, it becomes incumbent on us to also be like, okay, this person said this and this person said this, this is why this is important. This is why it like affects you. This is why, like, how does this play in that conversation about democracy? I think it's okay for us to take it to the point of using the information and the knowledge that we have and that we are able to gather and that we, you know, because we are lucky to do this for a living, are able to talk to other people and get more information and get that analysis out of people and present to the audience, not just here's what happened, but here is a way to understand why it is happening. Um, And here is how it might affect the future. And here's how the past brings you to the place that we are in now. And so I, I, I personally, you know, I, I disagree to a certain extent with the idea of like the both sidesism are like both sides are always equal. I don't think they are, but all the time. I think sometimes they are. I think if you're talking about taxes, I actually think the conversation on both sides is pretty equal. Um, and I think there's a way to present that and still tell people like your taxes go up, your taxes go down. Amazon doesn't pay any taxes. What does all that mean? Right. But I think there are sometimes when the both sides arguments aren't equal and it's our job to know when that is mm-hmm. as well as tell the audience, mm-hmm. okay, here it is. Like these two things don't quite match up, but here's why they don't match up. I think the mistake we make sometimes, um, especially a lot of times on sort of talking head cable TV news, which mind you, I was a talking head on cable TV news for a while, um, is we allow both sides to talk and then we go to commercial break, but we don't necessarily say, okay, you know, if, if you don't think these two things are equal, that's fine, but that means we as journalists have to show our work too. We have to, we have to say, this other side, like this argument doesn't make sense because this, 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 and this, we do a disservice to the audience when we're like, that side doesn't make sense. And this side does, but you don't tell me why. Yeah. And if you can't tell me why, if you don't have that power of analysis or that historical knowledge, then, then you shouldn't, then you shouldn't say one side is lesser than the other. That's fine. But if we're going to go that route, showing the work, becomes really, really important to having people trust us. Yeah. And right now, a lot of people don't trust the news. And so it's even more important to show the work of how you get to the story that you got to. Hopefully that made sense. It did. It totally did. We could do a whole nother episode just just about journalism and the state of it and where it's going and where it needs to go and, and its role you know, in our democracy, because it has changed, you know, so dramatically in the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, so, gosh, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. But I guess it, we have to go back now to the beginning. Okay, and, yes. And we have to go back to the beginning and how we met. So you were the A child of 15 <laughs> years old. And we gave you what I believe is your first college scholarship, because who gets a scholarship at age 13? Um, And you wrote me the most incredible poem. And I'm just full disclosure, I'm going to post that poem. I'm going to post all of it. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, The story. Very embarrassing. So but I think it's wait, but I think it's worth saying uh, to the audience, and maybe they know this, but this is part of like an organization that you were a part of that was a, 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 you know, tennis classic that involved kids like playing tennis, but also was a, a way to get scholarships for college. So exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's called the Linda Laurel Scholarship Fund now. Back then it was called the Linda Laurel Tennis Classic. And as you said, kids who were playing tennis had an opportunity to get scholarships. And we've grown it into this organization that to date has awarded, what, four and a half million dollars in scholarships to over almost 400 students. And you're one of them. 
And yeah. you were back. I also think it's important to tell the audience you didn't have to be good at tennis because I'm actually I was a terrible tennis player then. I am still a terrible tennis player, but it was it was it was a way to be introduced in some ways to tennis, but also you know get a scholarship. No, and it, the, really the tennis was the means to the end. You know because yeah. I was playing tennis and. Um, and so the kids would, you know, take part in this, this tennis program, and then they were offered the opportunity to apply yeah. for a scholarship. Um, and so for me, it was always about the educational piece and really, you know, wanting to, to give students some hope for the future and show them a path and show them people who might look like them that are achieving and can making those connections and introducing them to other people in the community, et cetera, et cetera. So take me back to that day when you got your scholarship, if you remember. <laughs> and, and what prompted you? I never have asked you this. What prompted you to write the poem? My mom. My mom said, you know, this is such a good opportunity. And it's, it's interesting. And, you know, Linda Laurel is, is such a known person in the community. She was like, you should, you should write something and give it to her. Like as a thank you, basically. So that that was that was Rhonda Thomas, totally Rhonda Thomas. I would like to pretend I was that aware of a thirteen year old, but I wasn't. I was thirteen. My mom said do this, and she thought I was a talented writer at the time. I'm sure that poem is terrible, um, and uh, and so I I did it, and we like printed it, and I think framed it or something. Yes. And brought it along. And I think it's worth knowing, like, I, I didn't know if I was going to win. Like, y'all did not tell the parents or the students beforehand no. No, who was going to win the scholarship. No, and here's the thing. The whole thing was a surprise. And we only gave as much money as we were able to raise. And yeah. so we had had the whole weekend and we had, you know, fundraisers and auctions and stuff going throughout the weekend. And when it was time to present the scholarships, we were only planning to give 12 because we had that much money. We raised additional money during that weekend to give a oh. third scholarship, and that was yours. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. That was okay, yours. cool. Yeah. Uh, um, and so, I mean, what I remember, and I, like, I don't have the best memory for things from my childhood, is yeah. I think I was literally the last person called. So I guess I was the 13th scholarship. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was a surprise, and it was great. And, you know, starting your college fund at that point is a good thing. Um, and, and I had this poem, so I, so I read it to you. And you made me cry. And I made you cry. Yes. <laughs> yes. You made me cry that you did. So, you know, I, I'm spending some time interviewing, you know, some of our former scholars and you're probably one of the, well, if not the highest profile, definitely one of them. So what do you think it means to, um, for organizations, and I'm not trying to, you know, pat ourselves on the back, but there's so many incredible community organizations that are reaching out to young people and helping them see that they they can achieve their dreams. What what is the impact of doing that? Do you think having been someone who has actually been through that? I mean, I think the impact of it is it starts especially with something like the organization you had, and I believe y'all gave some scholarships to people who are younger than me, and I was 13 at the time. Um, it, it's, it helps continue that spark of like, continuing your education is important. And it's not just like, we're gonna talk to you about this, about going to college when you hit 15, 16, and you're taking the SATs and, and everything. It's, it, it plays into that building block of like, this is important at all stages and you are building towards something. And here, like even at this moment when you're 11, 12, 13, we're gonna give you a little bit of money so that you start thinking like, oh, I have a little bit of a cushion. And yes, yeah, yeah I ended up going to GW, which is wildly overpriced. Um, but even knowing that like, okay, there's, there's this little bit of something that I know is in my back pocket and it's a symbol of how important it is to do that thing five, six years later. Um, I, I think that's a big part of it. Like continuously reinforcing, especially upon younger people of color, that 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 idea that people talk about or you see on TV or like going to college, that's a real thing. And that's a real thing that will help you. And you should be working towards that. And so those moments, even if they're few and far between, especially as you're younger, that just make it so that it isn't a crazy conversation. It's a like, this is typical. This is what you do. This is how this works. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's where the importance comes in. 
because it because you're then you're consistently having the conversation about what is after high school. And, you know, and there's so many incredible stories now. And we actually are in the process now of turning over the Linda Laurel Scholarship Fund to former scholars. Oh, wow. Put it in the hands of people like you and, you know, who have gone on to great success and, you know, are doing amazing things in the world. So, uh, you know, all those years ago, I never in a million years could have imagined that you would end up in the same profession that I know and love and have devoted, you know, most of my life to. And I can't tell you um, how honored I am to know you and to have known you through the years and to see the success that you're having is just, it's just so, so inspiring and so wonderful. It's an honor to know that you remembered who I was when you reached out. I was like, how does she even remember that? That was so many years ago and they've given away so many scholarships and like, you know, whatever, but you're inspiring. And I remember watching you on TV. I remember you telling me the news. We were, you know, yeah. once again, I work for CBS News. You should, you know, everyone should consume CBS News, CBS Morning, 7 a.m. Eastern time on your local CBS affiliate. (laughs) But we grew up in NBC household uh, because people grow up as households. And I, you know, you were a prominent woman of color on TV doing this thing that that helped inform people every day. And that, you know, I may not have understood the impact of that when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, but I get it now. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you are very welcome. And uh, it's it's humbling to, to hear you say that. And, and so now here you are at CBS Mornings and yeah. you are killing it. And I remember the first time I saw your name in the credits, because you guys roll credits on Fridays. And I always, yes. by the way, that's one of my favorite key parts of the whole show. Is yeah, the, the eye closer with the credits. Oh, yes. I love it. I totally love it. And I, and all during the week I'm picking, I, so that's going to make, that's going to make Friday's credits. <laughs> that's, that's, I can pick, you know, which one. It's literally someone's job to make that. It it's to like be. their only job because there, it takes so much work. It has to be their job. Of course. Yeah. Of course. That, so anyway, I remember the first time those credits ran and it said executive producer, Shauna Thomas. And I went, is that my Shauna Thomas? It's like, Lou, my husband, Lou, <laughs> it's Shauna. And that's why I reached out to you. I was like, is that you really on CBS mornings? Yeah. No, it was, I, you know, I, I always hesitate because there's so much more I have to do and the work is never done and the product is not perfect and everything. But I will say the first time we ran those credits after I got the job and I had my name at the top, there is a moment where you're like, holy s-h-i-t oh my god oh my god as an executive producer of this show oh yeah. and then you realize there's a lot of work involved okay. with that. get over yourself and get to work. exactly but it was it was a, a nice moment that morning yes well it was a beautiful moment for me as well and i'm so incredibly proud of you and honored to know you and to um just have had you as a guest on the podcast so is there anything yeah. that i haven't given you a chance to say that you'd like to leave with our audience um, no, I think you've given me a lot of chances. I just, I really go back to, you know, these, the television news business and the media business. It is a strange, strange business. It is a hard one to break into. I am not, um, you know, I, I think I did a lot of work, but there's a little luck involved in being in the right place at the right time. Um, but I really go back to if this is the kind of thing you want to do, if you want to tell stories, if you want to be involved in journalism or tell stories in other ways, if you want to get into like entertainment television, if you want to get into reality television, that whole thing. um, One, like look for opportunities early on, especially when you're in school to like intern in those things and like find ways to be part of it. I had lots of, you know, I mentioned the Fox News internship, but I also interned at the local CBS affiliate in, in LA when I was in grad school. I interned at Good Morning America. I, you know, I took other opportunities that came along. Um, so, you know, find a way to like get involved, but also it comes back to that, like raise your hand and be there and be present and say yes. And, and you know, if that tape, I'm using old school terminology, but if that tape needs to be logged, log the tape and do it really, really well. And I think one, especially if it, like, I don't know what your audience is like. So maybe this, they will pass this on to, to younger people that they know. Uh, 
at every level, doing quality work stands out. And so since I become someone who has like senior in their title or executive in their title, the thing I always say about interns is you you only remember the stellar ones and the terrible ones. That's it. You don't remember anybody in the middle. Um, you you the terrible ones you will never ever forget, and that's and people think you don't remember, but you do remember. And when that resume shows across your desk again, it comes up on your desk again, you're like world. that person was terrible. That television this world is a small world too. It's a very it's a very small world. But the stellar ones, the thing I don't think people also realize is you try to find a way to get them a job. And when I um, when I was still at Meet the Press, we had this intern named Justin who we did finally because he was a, he was stellar. Who we finally found like a freelance job for, and he was great at it. And when I walked out the door of Meet the Press, one of the things that I sort of left my boss at the time with was like my recommendations. And I was like, I'm leaving. That means like, you're going to have a little extra money to play with. Make that kid a staff member with full benefits. Like that is something that you need to do. He is an integral part of this show. He's the lowest rung, but he should have more than what he currently does. And they did. And you like people, everyone remembers the hard workers. So just raise your hand, say yes, and work hard. I love it. Perfect message to leave for our young people. Shauna, you're amazing. Thank you so you're much. You're amazing. No, thank you. This has been fun because people like talking about themselves and you gave me an opportunity to do that. Well, um, but, but thank you. I learned so much about you. So this was great. Thank you so much, my friend. What a powerhouse. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. So I am going to make sure that we have Shauna come back because I feel like we just scratched the surface with her. There's so much more we could talk about. I want to thank all of you for giving her permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. Thank you for being a trusted and valued member of the Our Voices Matter podcast family. If you've not already done so, please do subscribe on your favorite podcast platform of choice. Like us and then share. We really want to get the word out about the conversations that we're having that will hopefully help bring us together as humans. Thanks so much again, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to our sponsor, BMW of West Houston. There's a special offer for members of the Our Voices Matter podcast community. Just click the link in the show notes, bmwwest.com.